Greetings, dear listeners. As we head into the new year, Shadi and I had our friend Robert Nicholson of Philos on the show. Shadi was on Robert's new podcast recently debating the Abraham Accords, so we thought we'd return the favor and have Robert on to talk about the importance of religion in the Middle East. Things, of course, go off in weird tangents. By the bonus episode, we're talking about Israel's new government, but only after several philosophical detours. If you're not yet a subscriber, do become one by visiting wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. On to the show. Let's get right to it then. I mean, Robert, welcome again to the pod. It's great to have you. Um, As some listeners may know, you're part of the reason that Wisdom of Crowds even started. You are part Mm -hmm. of the origin story. And, you know, we were on on a bus in Israel, as one one tends to be. (laughs) And um, this was the summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of other, you know, journalists and analyst type people on the bus as part of this um, research trip that your organization, Philos, organized. And Megan McArdle of the Washington Post was listening to me and Demir going back and forth in the back of the bus. And she's like, hey, you guys should just get a podcast. And we took that quite literally. And very soon thereafter, we started the podcast and the rest is history. So first of all, thank you, Robert. Indeed. And we're we're happy to have you because, well, for any number of reasons, but we should note to listeners that you have your own podcast now. You're the host of a new podcast called The Deep Map. And I was the first guest on it. And I really appreciate that you had me on because I have a very different view than you on the very topic of your, on, you know, of your podcast. Like one of the things that you've been looking at is the Abraham Accords and this thaw and the relationship between Arabs, well, Arab regimes and Israel. And I'm an outspoken critic of the Abraham Accords. Um, I don't like them. I, you know, I wish there was an alternate history where they didn't happen, but you still had me on and we talked that through. It just shows the kind of um, broad minded approach that you have. But maybe let's start with that, you know, um, and then we can get into some bigger issues around um, religion and politics. But maybe there is an intersection here because you're someone who said that if we want to understand the Arab Israeli conflict, we have to take religion seriously. Yeah. Do you still feel that way? How has is, how is your thinking evolved on this question of the role of religion and the extent to which it drives conflict in the region? My views on that particular topic have only gotten stronger. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming fanatical on this point. And it's not just Arab-Israeli conflict. It's it's really all conflicts. And and let me be clear about what I mean by that, because it's often misinterpreted. And I didn't realize it was being misinterpreted until recently. I think when I say that one has to, you know, factor in religion more than factor in, like think about it deeply in any situation, conflict or otherwise, 
people think I mean that, uh, you know, X religion in question is is evil and encourages violence or that religion in general is 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 linked to violence or I mean, there's a lot of assumptions that people make. And that's not what I mean. What I mean is that human beings are fundamentally spiritual. They do things uh, to meet bodily needs and they do things to meet spiritual needs. Right. We're sort of two things in one. And while it's true that one has to think about uh, economics and uh, social dynamics when looking at conflicts, just as much or more, one needs to be thinking about religion, right? What are the invisible things that the people in this particular part of the world believe to be true? It doesn't even matter if it is. And how is how are those beliefs influencing their actions? Because people do irrational things, right? And you can't account for it in any other way. They feel things, right? There's there's fear, there's a sense of, of triumph, right? And all these things are based on uh, myths, essentially. And I think that one of the biggest shortcomings, certainly in US policy, but I really I think it's universal these days, um, is the fact that we just don't think about it. And, or we're afraid to think about it. We're afraid to touch that because if we do, some Pandora's box opens and everything gets much worse, where I think it's actually the opposite. I think if you start with an appreciation of what people believe to be true and, and, and why that's driving them to do this or that, you are able to actually be much more empathetic to, to both sides or all sides in any given conflict and begin to think about, okay, what, what can really solve this conflict? You know, you think about Ukraine, you think about Iran, you think about uh, you know, very, you know, I work on Christian communities around the Near East. You think about the Arab-Israeli conflict. You think about Palestinians. Like, you think about Trump, anti-Trump in this country. So much of these uh, debates are shaped by the participants' beliefs. So why aren't we talking about it? So I started this podcast really to give myself something. Everybody's talking about politics, and I, I'm, I love politics. But to me, politics are derivative. You know, they're the dependent variable. Religion's the independent one. And uh, I just don't think people are talking about these things enough. So that, that was where the podcast came from. So, Robert, your use of the word irrational is interesting to me because presumably if people are doing the things that they do, they don't think those things are irrational. They've made a conscious decision to pursue a particular course of action based on deeply held beliefs or perhaps not so deeply held beliefs, but they've made a calculation and they've decided to do something. So can, can you maybe say a bit more about how you view the question of rationality versus irrationality? Sure. I, well, I think irrational in this context means uh, in the eyes of those around them, right? Somebody you know, a suicide bomber blows themselves up, right? For people who get blown up or people who see it happen, they think insane, right? I mean, you're going to kill yourself. Why would you do that? I mean, you cut off your nose to spite your face. But I, I agree with you that in this person's mind, this is abundantly rational, right? This is this is the right thing to do, but you can't prove that, right? It's 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 unverifiable that his theory of the cosmos is correct, right? That he's going to die and he will be rewarded in certain ways or, or whatever. And, um, but that's really important. Now, th these things are often dismissed in policymaking circles 
as the, you know, the product of social circumstances or financial difficulties or whatever. But I, I take all that stuff very seriously. Like it matters to me what that guy thinks. I want to know exactly what he thinks and the details of it and where he learned it. And if it's a, if it's ubiquitous in his community or if he's just some kind of outlier, I mean, why wouldn't that be the most interesting part of that analysis? But it's, it's like a taboo topic. I don't, I don't think it's that nobody sees it. I think it's just, it's uncomfortable because it, 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 there's not, there's no, there's no objective basis by which to measure these things or to say, well, he's wrong or he's right or, or whatever. And that's, that's difficult, right? For people who have to make, you know, quick decisions in, in real time in terms of politics or policy. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to the, to the difficulties of leaders who have to make these decisions. But I think those of us who don't should be trying to, uh, you know, enrich the conversation in that regard as much as possible. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, Robert, the, 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 the thing about, you know, you're saying about foregrounding religion and a lot of this stuff, um, you don't necessarily though mean that, that, you know, these are, fundamentally religious conflicts, right? It's just that it needs to figure into it. I mean, the reason I, I sort of, uh, you know, that, that like caught my ear is because ultimately, you know, the, the thing about religious conflict, you can have, you can have dialogue, uh, but if you, you're starting about, you know, deeply held beliefs that are foundational, uh, on some level, there's an irreconcilability towards uh, between sort of things that are deeply held. Now, again, dialogue, interfaith dialogue, all of that serves a role, but you know, it's, they're not simply religious conflicts and it's not simply that, right? It's just that, that you wish that policymakers would take it more into account. The reason I react to it is because, you know, it's like, it, it's that there's something about when people start talking about religious conflicts that just makes me think of, you know, the Balkans and ancient hatreds and things like that, which mm. is also a very convenient way to just sort of wave it away, you know, and say like, well, you know, it's a, mm. it's a religious conflict. Well, you know, nothing to be done there. So I don't know. And, you know, even thinking through what I was just saying, it makes me think maybe that's why policymakers shy away from it, because they don't see it as a productive means of engaging in any of that. Is that fair? It's, it's true. Um, but, you know, it also has to do with the way – Westerners in particular think about religion, right? We think of it as something you kind of hide in your heart and, you know, you do on Sunday morning or, or Friday night or whatever. Um, but, you know, in certainly in the part of the world I work on in the Near East, the Middle East, religion, you know, especially Judaism and Islam have a very public dimension. I mean, Shadi Moses writes about it. I mean, this is, it is all pervasive. It is everywhere, even for people who are not believers, right? You know, you meet a Muslim, you know, I don't know, does he actually believe in the in the doctrines? Right. Maybe, maybe not, but right. he, he would never think about not being a Muslim or have living in a society that isn't at least formally based on uh, the Quran and the values within it, right? So it's like, it's true, but it's also, it, it's too big to avoid. I mean, think about the Syrian civil war. Right. There's all kinds of I mean, how many zillions of gallons of ink have been written about the Syrian civil war? And yet the most important fact of the war is that you have, you know, a Sunni Muslim majority that has a certain way of, you know, thinking, of believing, of, of living a certain kind of society it wants to see, speaking generally. 
and you have uh, a sort of a, a smattering of various non-Muslim or non-Sunni minorities who have a very different view, and, and they're all kind of locked in the same room. So it's there's a structural issue here also, and you find that you found that in the Balkans, right? Insofar as you have people with all of these fundamental different worldviews crammed into the same space, surrounded by a solid line, you can do your best to try to solve the the you know the quote unquote political problems, but they're, the big big problem, the thing that is making it all happen is the one thing you don't want to talk about. Right. So I'm not, I won't sit here and pretend that, you know, there's a very neat and, and clear and coherent way to talk about religion. It's sort of inside you, it's in the collective, it's in the air, it's it's hard, but it, it has to be foregrounded. I think that's the right word, it has to be. Let me, so I might, this might be a weird question, Robert, but okay, so you described a general Muslim vibe of being inclined towards religion, regardless of what people believe in their hearts. Do you think that is a good thing on balance or a bad thing? Like if we say that at least Muslims in the Middle East and particularly in the places that you focus on in the region are this way, do you think it's, I know that you're, you know, one of the things that I like about you, Robert, is that you like to understand and you're not here to pass judgment or make big normative claims about the way things should be. But I am, and that's why I'm not even sure exactly what you'll say, but hmm. what is it good, bad, something in between? I think it's good until it's not. I think generally good. I like, I like faith, you know, religion sounds bad. Faith sounds better somehow. So I'll, I'll use faith in this context. I, I like it, right? It shapes, I'm a person of faith. It shapes the way I think about the world. It shapes how I talk to people, like the things I don't say to people. It shapes everything. Like from, from my perspective, it is it is part of my identity. It is my identity. At least it starts there. And I like that. Now, the problem comes when people, let's say me, uh, impose my worldview on someone else. That's That to me is the line. And that's where pluralism becomes so important. And for me, pluralism is just sort of like, you know, mutual respect amid difference, you know, and sometimes it takes place across a national border. Sometimes it takes place across a street. But it's this idea that we all recognize we believe in big, important things that shape our idea of who we are and what all of this is about. But we also recognize that what I believe and you believe may not necessarily be the same and that we're going to agree to disagree and uh, do our own thing. That works in but some it, places better part- than others mm-hmm. with some religions better than others. But, and that's, but, but that's, that's where the analysis needs to start. I think. But yeah, isn't part of the issue that what you described the kind of um, threshold of concern where people start to impose their worldview on others Part of the problem is we don't agree on what it, what that actually means, what counts as an imposition. And I think certain, even in the U.S. context, I think that, you know, debates around abortion and public religiosity and to what extent certain organizations, churches, communities need to, fo- you know, follow certain things around uh, – you know, whether it's gender identity, gay marriage, and so forth, I, there is there is this kind of blurry space of in-between where peop, some people would say, like, one man's imposition is another man's 
I don't know, fill in the blank. Yeah, let me mm-hmm. let me just jump in, even Robert, before you answer that, maybe to maybe even challenge. I mean, it's an ongoing thing that Shadi and I talk about. But you know, the the you said uh, faith is not a problem, and being you know inclined to faith is not a problem until it is. Is the problem when faith becomes the sole identifier within a community, within a society? And this is, I mean, to turn it on Shadi, you know, the the fights he and I often have about this is, you know, this question of minimal democracy and, and what's required. And, you know, my intuition is that you need something, something above to glue it all together. And I, I think, I feel like Shadi's argument often is, is that you need... Um, you know, just just a, a an agreement on the rules. Like minimal democracy is just you agree mm-hmm. that democracy is how we solve this, and you respect that, and that's enough. I always have this intuition that that's not enough. You need some kind of larger idea. So I mean, you know, Shadi's point about like imposition on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, the other way to think about it is like, is there is there something overarching here that's that's necessary? You know, is that the problem with mm. faith as like the soul defining thing? I don't know. How, how do you how do you parse both of those both sides of that? Yeah, well, those are those are really tough. Que- those are the big questions. I and I'm not going to sit here and say I've got it all figured out. I don't. This is a it's a journey, as they say. But um, I think that this is where uh, it becomes important to point out that that some religions are more are more public than, than others, right? Christianity, there's a, there's obviously lots of uh, intermingling of Christianity and politics, but, you know, if you read the texts and there's a sort of, uh, you know, let's get down to the, to the original doctrines, it's, it's much more apolitical than say Judaism or, or Islam and, and, and some other religions. And um, I think that matters in a political context because, uh, you know, Christians just like Muslim and Jews like to live in groups and they like to have their societies reflect some basic set of values, but uh, they differ from Jews and Muslims in being okay with seeing these things enshrined in public law. Now, when it comes to religious liberty issues, Shadi, some of the things you mentioned, I think it's the, you know, the whole topic of, of carve-outs and of religious exemptions and all of that is extremely important in, in a democracy. But I think when you when you say you're in a you know in a, an Islamic context or or you know you look at what you know there's a new government coming in in Israel and some of what the people in that new government want to see in public law in terms of observance of of Sabbath and in closing of stores on certain days and you know changing agricultural laws and all that that's when those those religious exemptions those carve outs. Uh, may not be enough. And then you're talking about, you know, you're back to the fundamental question, like, can we as a group of people all live in this society together? Do we agree on what this thing even is, right? Which to me seems like a more important question to ask before you get to the, okay, then, so what are the rules that we're going to observe as we as we uh, live together? And it's why I'm probably closer to, to you, Demir, on this about a big idea, linking people together. Of course, historically, the other way to do it is a big personality or a big dynasty. You know, that when there were dynasties in the world and monarchies, these questions became, you know, they became less important. Once we decided that we all had to, that we had to politicize every aspect of life with democracy, now everything is is kind of on the table in terms of 
how to organize life. There's obviously, I love living in democracy, but the downside is that, you know, if you have 61% of the people who have a certain vision of the cosmos and then want to, you know, change the laws of that society based on that vision, the other, the other, you know, 49% are, uh, you know, they're in a, they're in a, they're in a big, they're in a bad situation and, and, you know, religious liberty exemptions at a certain point point don't quite cover it. Having said that, last thing I'll say, I don't have a problem on the face of it of a Muslim country or a Jewish country or a Christian country. You know, I was just in Armenia, 99% Christian or whatever it is. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's great that they, they're like, we're Christian. We've been Christian for a really long time. We want to keep doing that. And we're actually going to, you know, do things in the public square to reflect that. I, on principle, I like that. It's, it's when uh, the line is crossed. And, and I think in each case, it's a little bit different as to what that means. I don't know if that was a coherent answer, but it's, but it's yeah, the best I've got. No, it is. And I, and I think that, and this is where I would disagree with Demir's perspective. Well, it's not so much I would disagree. If there was a higher set of principles and you go like one step above and you you don't stay with the democratic minimalism and you try to come up with some coherent narrative or thread that brings different citizens together, that would be amazing, of course. The problem is it's not clear how exactly you do that in deeply divided societies. Like So people have been debating this for, for years now. What is the thing that is going to bring Americans back together. And I just don't think there is a satisfying answer. And I ha- like, at least from my standpoint, I haven't seen or read a satisfying answer to that question. But it's even more difficult in a country like Israel. What So in my ideal world, um, there would be an Israeli identity that transcended religion, that it wasn't about being Jewish, but it was about... Well, being Jewish could be important, but that there was something beyond that, that there was a sense of shared mission and understanding that all citizens of the country could share, including the Arab minority. In other words, um, Israeli citizens who are not Jewish, and that's about um, 15 to 17 percent of the population. And but like, how is that possible in a country that is defined according to its Jewish identity? You reach a kind of impasse. Let me just mm-hmm. just one thing. You know, I I think we really should talk about Israel because I think it's it's you know I mean it's it's, it's paradigmatic of a lot of this stuff. But just on, on you know to answer your question, Shadi, in terms of America, I, I'm not sure you have an easy way to do it in a deeply divided society. But I think that that you know when the society was founded, this one in particular, it 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 was much less de- well. I mean, it was still deeply divided, but you could still basically. Uh, craft a set of myths. And I think the, the answer here is, is you said narratives, but yeah, myths, stories about it, like mm-hmm. basically uh, foundational stories. And again, we've talked about this before, but it's it's it's. But we disagree civil... on those foundational stories. That's the issue the now. The problem it's is now. How that's do you right. put that back together? Well, no, no, that's correct. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, this is why the biggest, the biggest thing that gives me worry about it is that we've started squabbling over, you know, things that may be just so stories that Abraham Lincoln so beautifully rendered and, you know, made poetry out of, but you know, weren't necessarily true historiography or whatever. Um, but, but you know, abandoning that, I think that that's one of the things that, that does worry me about the United States, because I don't think when you get to a situation where you have a society that is increasingly 
bereft of those kinds of things, uh, I think it's very difficult to put that back together. And yeah, you know, I mean, you have this like creedal idea in America. But then, you know, the flip side of it is there's a, maybe a more prosaic way to think about it is, is you know, I we've talked about this recently. I don't know how you feel, Robert. I, I thought these last midterm elections showed a, a very healthy Americanism and like a, a plural mm. society that is not as divided as our stupid little bubble makes us think it is. I mean, it's it, there's not mm. consensus or agreement, but there's a kind of sense of, you know, the elections happened. We voted as Americans. There was no violence. There was, you know. Uh, no, no denialism, no, like no, no craziness around it. And it's, it's, you know, so maybe it's things like, you know, just shared time together and like baseball and other sort of like very American things that are less lofty than, than, you know, the mythology around the founding fathers, but you need that. And maybe, you know, maybe that's a a pivot to then how to think about, you know, Israel is can, can you craft some kind of shared identity, you know, over lived experience together. The problem is, is that the lived experience together has been, you know, violent and tense for a very long time. So, you know, that presents a difficulty. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I, what do you guys well, think? Well, I mean, yeah, no, there's a lot there. I, I think, I don't think, Shadi, it's possible to craft an Israeli identity that is, you know, the, that goes above supersedes Jewishness or, or Palestinianness, Arabness. I just don't think it's possible. And I don't think it's something that we should expect from, from anybody. And I wouldn't expect it in Egypt or in any, in Iraq or in Armenia. I think that the, it is the right of peoples to be themselves uh, in every, in every way, right. Every aspect of themselves and to live as a society independently sovereignty and to craft their their law um, in light of that. And I think it's the right of people inside those societies who don't share that overarching identity to be given the same rights and the same place, right, as humans, even if not part of that larger collective, and to be guaranteed security in doing so. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of minimalist on that. And when I think that, things get to a point where it becomes clear that that's just not possible. And this is where I'm going to jump the shark a bit. And those, then those, then that couple needs to divorce. And I, and I'm talking about borders, right? There's a reason why I'm a two state solution guy. You know, it's like me in the Alamo. I'm the last guy left still uh, trying to hold the fort down because I don't think Palestinians and Israelis can share a society, not not in the long term, maybe, you know, briefly, so long as a certain amount of force is applied. But these people are just too different, right? They come not just from two ethnicities, but by and large, they're from two very large religious civilizations, right? With different historical memories. They have completely antithetical views of 1948. Like these two peoples of all people were going to lock in the same room? Like, no, of course not. They... Palestinians, will, and this is like, yeah. I could make a pro-Israel argument for why Palestinians need their own state. It just it just doesn't work, right? And why we're also, um, you know, I think about other parts of the region, right? Everybody's allergic to Sykes-Picot. Uh, but I mean, have you seen the borders of Europe over the last thousand years? I mean, I don't think there's two years together where, where the borders are actually the same. I mean, the fact is, people's change, people's move, right? Ideas change. There's there's a certain amount of flexibility and fluidity 
that needs to be worked into these calculations that says that, that actually solves some of the problem of people with different fundamental worldviews being forced to live in the same society. Like if those lines can become more flexible uh, and I'm not talking about by, by the yeah. way, population transfers and all of that. I'm just talking about uh, agreements, deals, uh, you know, big things that can be done to, to uh, you know, especially working with outside powers to, to change the dynamics on the ground, change some of the structural problems so that different peoples with different worldviews can have their own space. Sometimes it's sovereign and independent. Sometimes maybe it's some in a federal arrangement. I don't know, but I think that does give so, a lot of uh, cushion to what we're talking about. Okay, divorce is possible when we're talking about Israelis and Palestinians. I think, I don't really see how divorce works when you're talking about Israeli Arabs who are not part of some future state in Gaza and the West Bank. They are Israeli. I, I don't mm. know. So I, that, I actually don't know if there's an answer. Yeah, but is that, that a I'm, problem? I'm, I'm getting more. Why, why is that a problem? Like there's Arab why states what, all over the region. Why, why can't you be, I mean, I know these people. I know a number of them. Mansour Abbas is one of these people, right? The, the Islamist uh, member of the government. I mean, it's, or former member, like, it's very possible to live in a state that's not yours and say, yeah, I'm not that, but, you know, I like it here. I mean, Britain was was Christian, still is, right? There's, You can be a Yazidi in Armenia. I was just with them, and, like, they don't have an issue with Armenia being a Christian country so long as they're Yazidis and they're accepted and they have rights and they do all the same stuff everyone else does. I don't – to me, that but just they, doesn't seem like mm. a big problem. Like, why, does, why well, do Yazidis well, clearly, have to feel – a, a part of Armenian, you know, society in, in that, in like the highest possible way. I just don't, I don't know. You Maybe really not in the highest possible way. I don't think there has to be an Arab prime minister of Israel, which, you know, obviously will never happen um, if Israel stays the way it basically is. But I think that at least a lot of the Arab Israelis I talked to, and actually I just had a meeting with, um, representatives from the Masawa Center, which you might be familiar with, and mm -hmm. they're an Arab Arab rights in Israel um, advocacy organization. So they're very focused on this particular issue of the 15 to 20% of Arabs in Israel proper. And the level of pessimism, I mean, again, like it depends who you talk to, but over time, just in terms of the starkness of the situation, my own perception is that it's getting worse, um, in part because there is a new far-right government, or at least, let's say, the most right-wing elected government in Israel's history. So when that sort of thing happens, then it brings a lot of this into stark relief for people who have to bear the brunt of exclusivist policies. And, you know, so if you're... in so, for example, one thing they told us, which is not new, but it's just worth just be remembering the overall context. It is hard to speak Arabic publicly in Israel in a lot of in a lot of parts of the country that that is something that people suppress or they're careful about how openly they're speaking Arabic. So just, you know, talking to your mom on the phone in Arabic that's some if you don't feel comfortable doing that in your own country speaking your native tongue because other people israel you know israeli jews will see that as potentially a threat or does this mean that 
you're going to commit a violent act or something like that, at a very fundamental level, it becomes hard to live in a society like that, even if you do have the right to vote, so on and so forth. But the basic fact of the matter is that you are an Arab and you you can't participate in the national anthem. You can't participate in the defense of the state through the through military service. You probably are never going to be a minister in the cabinet. At best, you could be a minister without portfolio. But any any real senior level position in the cabinet is probably not going to be possible for you because you're not someone who buys into or believes in the Jewish nature of the state because you yourself are not a Jew. If you marry someone who is not an Israeli citizen, that person is not going to easily become a citizen of Israel, where someone who has never set foot in Israel who's Jewish because of the because of the right of return for, for, for those who are Jews. So it's just basic things speak to a fundamental inequality between Arabs and Jewish citizens. So if equality before the law is what you need, there's not even really that in Israel proper. I Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, I, I'm in Israel a lot, and I don't, I don't understand the idea that Arabs can't speak Arabic. You hear it everywhere. I mean, everywhere, the mall, the restaurant. I mean, it's literally everywhere. So I don't, I'm not sure that. But in specific, but but comment. but specific areas where, um, yeah, I, that's why I said like in certain parts of Israel that can be sensitive. Like if you're close Maybe. to, if, you know, if you're close but to I a mean, settle, like, anyway, I just we don't. don't so like I'm, I'm, I'm a minimalist in my pluralism because I travel around this region too much and everything that you're saying applies for Christians in every other country, right? You can't walk around speaking Assyrian or Aramaic, whatever you want to call it, in northern Iraq because people think you're speaking Hebrew or some other thing, right? That's, that's, that's a common thing that's said. I mean, there's I could go on. There's like long, long lists of ways in which people who don't share – the fundamental worldview of the majority, you know, a majority that has publicly in its constitution said this is a, you know, a Muslim state based on the Quran and the Sharia is the main source of legislation. That's, by the way, that's the basic law of Palestine, right? That's actually what the Palestine basic law says. This is a Muslim state. Arabic's the language. It's an Arab state. And uh, we speak okay, Arabic. But, but and, and I just, just to interrupt there, the I just want to... So, it's okay, very but, normal. But a it's just normal. Christian, I'm not mad about that either. Okay, but a Palestinian Christian can feel fully Palestinian. A Copt in Egypt can feel fully Egyptian. Many of the Egyptian Copts I know are Christian. proud of their Egyptian identity. Sorry? Yeah, but their identity is not bifurcated. I mean, they're Christian, so they, they can't be fully Egyptian. They can't be fully uh, Jordanian. But, no, they, they can't, can't be. be. I mean, fully. Well, I mean... They can't. They cannot Many participate Egyptian in the Christians state I at know the highest feels, level. Hmm. They can't. I mean, you can't even. You can't even get into the the soccer leagues, like the big soccer leagues in Egypt, if you're Christian. If your name is such but and such, you know. Yeah. It's no. It's it's very. But, it's a very can, common problem in the region, is what I'm saying. So I don't like it. But you can talk to I an just Egyptian kind Christian. Of just, it. I, I. But you can talk to an Egyptian Christian who says, "I am. I am Egyptian. This is my country. I'm proud of it." And I will defend it where it's much more difficult to have an Arab citizen of Israel 
who can say those same things, um, even with something as basic as, you know, the national anthem. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, there is there is a difference there, isn't there? Just in terms of how people self-identify I, I and being I mean, proud I of a certain the, identity. Being proud. I'd have to think about that. I'd have to think about that. I mean, I, I do think that you know, Demir said it's paradigmatic, paradigmatic. I think it's, it's singular in lots of ways, the Arab Israeli or, or Israeli Palestinian conflict. And insofar as you have this tiny fragment of the massive Arab nation sliced off and kind of planted in Israel. Yeah. It's a weird situation. It's uncomfortable and you can't fully be, you know, if I was the only American living in Iran or, I don't know, China maybe these days, I might say, yeah, you know, yeah, I get all my rights and all that, but I don't quite feel at home here. Because why? Because there's like this bigger overarching conflict that is is in the air. So I think there's there's like a, a zoom out thing that is important in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict always. You know, from the Israeli perspective, the Israeli Jewish perspective, it doesn't look the same as it does um, to the maybe Israeli Arab or Arab around the region, right? Israelis, they're seeing the region and they're thinking of themselves as a minority where Arabs uh, in Israel are thinking about themselves in Israel and seeing themselves as the minority. And it's, they're both right, but it does shape the way the two peoples think about the other and living together. Here's a question, Shadi, for you uh, and, and minimal democracy. Um, what, how would minimal democracy work could it work in Israel where basic rights to, you know, vote and organize are preserved um, and, uh, you know, maybe enforced uh, differently than they are now? But nevertheless, that that feeling of full belonging uh, is out of reach. How does that how does that stress test your minimal democracy thesis about that's all you need? Well, that's to, precisely what. Israel is today. It, yeah. it does fulfill democratic minimalism. And I often cite Israel as the most successful Ill, illiberal democracy in the world. So when people say, well, oh, illiberal democracies never last, they always devolve into authoritarian rule. Well, first of all, that's not true in a number of other cases, but it's certainly not true in the case of Israel. And so in that sense, Israel is a model for, but I mean, I'm, so here's, people are sometimes confused by this because they're like, Shadi, aren't you contradicting yourself? But my position is simple. I, I don't like the outcomes in Israel, but as a democratic minimalist, I have to acknowledge and accept that this is the result. It's the same way that I feel about the persecution of um, discrimination against Muslims in India, un- under Hindu nationalist rule, elections are free, and there just happens to be a permanent minority that is fundamentally disadvantaged in electoral competition. And then, I, do I like beef bans on the local level? No, I wish they didn't happen, but they are democratically legitimate. And if Hindus in a particular state, in Indian state, want beef bans, they should have the right to express those preferences through public policy if they're able to get enough votes. Um, and the list goes on. I mean, France, I am one of the most outspoken people on just how how absurd some of the aggressive French secularism is when it comes to limiting 
the you know the role that a Muslim woman who wears headscarf can play in state institutions, for example. That's crazy to me. But if that's what the majority of French citizens want, then I have to I have to respect that. So that's how that's how I would sort of thread the needle. I don't like a lot of these outcomes, but they are democratically legitimate. And so, so in Israel, then yeah, go on. Uh, sorry, well, I was just going to say. So if it's just applying the same logic, right? If if the majority Jews say this is a Jewish state and this is going to be the anthem, that's the flag. Like that's just what it is. Democratically arrived at those conclusions. I mean, doesn't that just obviate the whole, you know, inquiry as far as you know, Israeli Arabs? No, do they, no. Look, can they identify no, at the they, highest so, level? It's you, like, well, it's what the majority has. Well, said. yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how I feel and about get, it, but I'm just trying to understand your your point. Totally, yeah. That is that is the right of the Jewish majority to pursue this course. That doesn't mean I have to like it. And that doesn't mean that Arab citizens of Israel have to like it. I mean, I, I think normatively it is bad, just like I think restrictions on um, conspicuous religious symbols in France after the 2004 law are normatively bad. But mm-hmm. democracies have the right to pursue bad things. I mean, that's really at the heart of my my view on this. And that's why I always say, well... You know, um, this is the problem of democracy that, you know, and that's why I wrote a book about it, that basically democracy is the right to make the wrong choice. Another way of phrasing it is democracy is about the right to make bad choices that I, Shadi Hamid, disagree with profoundly. But is your disagreement just uh, an opinion or is it grounded in like some sense of justice? And does that justice have any impact on on state legitimacy? No, I'm not willing to go that step. <laughs> I know you're not. <laughs> no, I mean, just it's not my view of just. No, I, I mean, I, I don't. Justice, we, we don't. I don't. I have my own views of justice, but I don't. I'm not comfortable saying that my view of justice is the one that is correct and normatively sort of valid where the others aren't. Obviously, different religious traditions come at the question of justice in different ways. There are secular and liberal conceptions of justice, and there's no inherent like there's no inherent reason that my view of justice should win out over the others. Robert, how do you how do you? Parse and that's why democracy is ultimately yeah. the final arbiter because if we as citizens or as individuals don't agree on what justice means. We have to, the only way we can arbitrate is through democratic competition. So, but Robert, how, how do you how do you approach the question of justice? I mean, you're not. You're, I think you guys have similar ish sort of instincts on this, but I, I I I would guess that you're somewhat different on this, Robert. Justice between well, I mean, whom? just is it like states or it does, does or Shadi's you know so Shadi, Shadi seems to you know not seems to I know he he says uh, you know you have a. a a divided society, you have even lopsided majorities, um, you know, as long as you preserve minimal democratic access for the minority. Uh, but then the, the tyranny of the majority has a lot of leeway, basically. He may not like it. Mm-hmm. He'll say, I don't like it. But he won't say that uh, his intuition, his dislike of it is linked to a higher sense of he, that we would call justice. So he wouldn't go so far as to say this arrangement is unjust and illegitimate. Um, 
because mm-hmm. that's I would say that it, it could be unjust according to a certain view, but it's not illegitimate. Yeah. So un- injustice and illegitimacy don't go together. Where I feel like the modern liberal or progressive position on this is that injustice is tied to illegitimacy. Yeah. One leads to the other. I mean, Robert, maybe talk about it just in terms of conflict, right? And like how, how we approach conflict. Because I mean, I feel like a lot of this sort of conflict resolution stuff ends up being tied to, you know, addressing perceptions of injustice and, you know, things like that. And, you know, I, and that's also, I think, bogs down a lot of this, this stuff. Maybe it's what you're reacting to against when people don't want to, you know, engage with the religious stuff. I don't know. How do, how do you even parse any of this? Hmm. Wow, you guys just asking all the easy questions yeah, today. Yeah. Just justice. <laughs> Let's talk. Uh well, so I would I would agree with Shaddy that there are different conceptions of justice. And I would go further and say that those conceptions almost always come out of some tradition, some religious tradition, revealed tradition, usually out in our part of the world. Um, or they're a secularized version of some revealed tradition. And I think that's really where you get a lot of the, the progressive, uh, uh, you know, narrative these days. And because that's true, that means that, as he says, justice will look different uh, and be satisfying to different degrees to different people. Recognizing that when it comes to arbitrating between two peoples with two different traditions and therefore two different visions of justice, my cop-out is to say that this, my minimal pluralism is the answer. It is giving, understanding who you are, understanding that the other side is not you and is something very different and finding practical ways to create the, you know, to build the fence metaphorically between you, right? So people who have certain views of justice can have the, the live in that kind of society and that you can do the same in yours and that the ability for the two of you to do that alongside of each other, maybe not even liking each other, maybe hating each other, is in its own way some kind of meta justice, hmm. right? Like hmm. I, I think that there's there's um, there's a lot to what Shaddy's saying and that it's, it's I'm, I resist universal theories as a rule, and I, I think we, we use them far too much and that in most cases, a lot of it is recognizing that we have two things tangled up here, you know, two different groups with two different views. They need to be pulled apart or this is where I'm going to jump another shark. I think a lot of, you know, historically, what, how does this work out? People migrate, people leave, people vote with their feet. You don't like, you know, what did Jews do living in all these different Christian societies who were oppressive in, in this way or that. They lived there until they couldn't live there. And then they moved to the state next door. Now that's not satisfying today because we don't we don't like we want people to just stay in one spot and everybody's got to have the same rights in the same spot for all time and forever, them and their descendants. But historically that's not the way humanity works, right? People Well there go is a complication in this case. Are. I mean there's not a clear alternative for Israeli Arabs. In like there's no like if you're an Israeli Arab who who's thinking to themselves I want to vote with my feet. Like, where would you go? I, Presumably the two states. I, I wasn't actually thinking land, about too. Israel, I mean, part, but part well, of the issue here why, is that well, they, they believe I mean, how many this Arab is their states land. Are there? Right, but this yeah, is where the two-state sure. solution whoa, 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 gets Robert, at it, right? No, no, but come on, no. No, whoa, but I, wait, just, <laughs> no, but hold on a second. I mean, what Robert's saying is is basically, 
population transfers but they're that happen not, not necessarily okay. at the point of a gun, but but like through coercion and stuff yeah, like that. Move. That is the history of the world. He's right. Okay, about but Palestinians. Okay, but Palestinians who are Israeli citizens are not Egyptian. They are not Moroccan. But they that's are why not Robert, Saudi. Sure. But that's this why Robert's suggesting his, his his way out is actually setting up a no. viable Palestinian state, and then you you yeah, do a population. I'm, I'm a Palestinian state guy. No, no, okay, I'm, right, but I'm not. I mean, not everything doesn't about, exist. I'm just thinking about. For, go on. I okay, I agree, but I'm just, I'm just. It was, a, it was a general statement. It wasn't about Arabs or Palestinians. I'm just saying, you know, there are Assyrians in northern Iraq who think that's my land. That's been my land since before Jesus, and yet they're living in Australia. Why? Because they realized that society, the way that it's shaped, the way that it works or doesn't work, just isn't going to do it for them anymore or for their kids. And they can, they just can't stay. So they move. I mean, it's tragic. I don't like that either, but I'm saying as a, as a last resort, there is an, you know, an alternative here. People can go to those societies that are more aligned in terms of those fundamental worldviews. I mean, that's, I don't know. That doesn't seem controversial. Yeah. Well, well, look, I mean, first of all, it's not easy to um, get, to get entry into Australia. I mean, especially with their pretty um, hardline immigration stances over the years. But, you know, you can apply this to any number of Western states where it's become harder for someone to claim asylum or refugee status and so forth. So here we're presuming but that it's, it's happening possible here. for... It's, it's happening in New York State. I mean, you know how many people I know have moved to Florida? It's the same exact thing, right? It's just on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. It's the first well, time they in my have life right people are making move. political moves, right? Right, I mean, but they have they're the right actually to move moving to because Florida they think because, whatever. I, mm. It's a fundamental worldview. I think it's kind of silly, but people like to move because of a governor or something like that. But people are, and and if you really got down to it, like why would you pick up your whole family and move from here to Florida? Besides the weather, it's because why? Because they think well that that society is more like who I am and it's going to reflect my values. So they pick up their right, stuff. But as American move, citizens, they, they have the right to, to live anywhere in the U S as American citizens. That's not necessarily analogous to an Israeli Arab moving to Australia or to Egypt. First of all, it, it's very, you, you can't really immigrate to a country like Egypt. That's not even like an option. So I'm sure people already know this, but Arab states don't accept immigrants. Like you cannot become a citizen of these countries mm-hmm. unless you are like on the World Cup team or they want to, you know, something like that, <laughs> like, you know, right. whatever. But you, this idea that movement is possible for Arabs, Arab, first of all, Arab states suck and they're all almost all authoritarian for reasons we don't have to get into here. So... Um, and I'm very comfortable saying that these Arab states are worse than Israel is. Like um, from a moral and political perspective, a country that gives people the right to vote is morally superior than a country that doesn't. And uh, almost no Arab country with the exception of Iraq, Lebanon, um, running out there, um, that's all I got. <laughs> so Tunisia, are they? I mean, still, that tells you something. That? 
Yeah, not really. Mm-hmm. No, Tunisia, Tunisia I wouldn't include in this category any longer. But the so right Shadi, to vote in meaningful elections. But Shadi, I mean, I, again, I, I'm, I'm no expert in this, but, but isn't that the idea of the two-state solution? You create some kind of probably less democratic than Israel-Palestinian state, um, and then probably, uh, you know, through, through encouragement, inducement, or, you know, outright coercion, uh, you get a population transfer. And there's your there's your state that then holds all the disaffected Israeli Arabs. I mean, no one says that out loud. But because- why would you want to live? Well, why would you want to live in in the new Palestinian state if you're an Israeli Arab? It's going to be a shitty state. No, I get it. Let's be but, honest but- about this. People don't talk about this. Like, who wants to live in this new Palestinian state? Oh, sure, but I, it's like, not going to have I, no it- one's no one's talking about population transfers as anything but hideously tra- tragic. I mean, I you know I mean the, the, the New Yorkers moving to Florida is the probably the least tragic population transfer. In the- history of like humanity <laughs> look look it's Agreed. look it should be up to israeli arabs if some of them do want to move to the new palestinian state more power to them but they shouldn't be pressured into doing that okay but like because, i mean again, they will like, be that's they, politics right like that's that's the ugly reality of the world it's like this is how things like work right well i don't think they'll be forced because they still will be israeli citizens they'll still have the right to vote there won't be any legal mechanism through which to expel them like that would be I don't even know how that would work legally. It would be very challenging. And it would also mean that Israel would no longer be a democracy because even with a minimalistic democracy, you have to you have to keep the right to vote. So if you're basically saying that Israeli Arabs will no longer be able to participate in the Israeli political process, then Israel is no longer a democracy, even according to the most minimalist definition. Even if there's one act, one sinful act of of anti-democratic behavior, i.e. like uh, a breaching of the democratic thing and then reverting back to pure democracy once your your sort of minoritarian problem is solved. Again, you know what I mean? Like, does it mean the fact that like, you know, basically... you know, the, the, no, that's it, not the way it works. So, like in America, if like if blacks were expelled and denied the right or denied the right to vote and whatever, and then you're like, oh, well, it's a pure democracy. European for democracies the whites. are literally built on the fact that like people were expelled and that they're now ethnically pure. Like, you, and none of them would function. Well, they're not ethnically pure because of the Muslims who are there. No, exactly. But I'm saying the fact is the whole the whole compact and the whole rise of democracy in Europe is predicated on massive population transfers and actually the 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 solving of the massive ethnic problems that that bedeviled the multi ethnic empires that exist previously and it like those states literally nation states democracies could not exist had they not gone through that that's that's the other part of it yes now, I'm, and, I'm, and aware so, of the, I'm aware of the state building process i just don't think that's a model that should be replicated oh, that's fine but does it mean they're not democracies that's all i'm saying i'm not saying it's good i'm not saying <laughs> no, this, no, is, no, no. Well, this is a model well, that we should be like cheering on i'm just saying this idea that you can't like do something horrible and then become a democracy after i don't see how that works but anyway yeah yeah but you would okay but uh, <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Sure, eventually you can that you can become a democracy over time. Sure, okay, but in the in the short term, if Israel disenfranchises Arabs, and and specifically when it comes to the right to vote, that's what I mean there. But also probably extend to other rights, the right to protest, and you know some might argue that even now, when Arabs protest in Israel proper, they are. You know, the May 2021 protests are an example where hundreds of Arabs were detained um, for just protesting. But we don't have to get into the specific instance. But 
you know, if that happened and these rights were denied, then the day after we couldn't be like, oh, well, the Arabs are gone. Now it's just pretty much Jews. Israel is like a full democracy. No, like there would there would have to be. Um, can you put a, what can you put a time frame you, on that? The cooling off period until they can regain democratic like, status I don't, again? I, don't, I actually don't know. I'm sure. So honestly, <laughs> like I'm sure this would be such a not i mean at least in recent decades like a fairly novel development yeah so i don't know i mean i'd be interested to read a little bit more about what scholars have said about you know well i don't know if anyone's ever really written about a cooling off period (laughs) so it might be a new area of scholarly inquiry ethnic cleansing yeah Yeah. post-ethnic cleansing (laughs) democracies come on (laughs) well let me just can i just say yeah this it's all very speculative. Shay. I mean, if you look at any polling numbers of Israeli Arabs, you're not seeing the kind of stuff that you're talking about until now. So tomorrow, okay, I understand there's a new government, but like by and large, the whatever you call it, the approval ratings, and there, this comes out in a number of different polls, a number of different questions on those polls. Israeli Arabs are by and large um, extremely well adjusted and and overall, and I think to pretty high numbers satisfied and, and happy with their life in Israel. Now, I'm very conscious of, you know, taking uh, people around okay, wait, the, I'm sorry. Know, Jim Crow sorry, sorry, Robert, I'm an- and saying everybody's happy. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking about polling numbers, Shadi. This isn't like Robert Okay, I don't know what you mean uh, by um, extremely well-adjusted or happy. I mean, I, I'd be curious to mobile. kind of dig into I mean, compared to average Arabs in other countries, I mean, I could – uh, Exactly. Some That's polls, the problem. But, you're you're comparing what? you're comparing Arab Israelis to the shitty countries in the rest of the Middle East that are dictatorships that are like some of the worst places to live, and we're saying that Israel is better for Arabs. That's not the right comparison That's, no, because I, if you're I, an that, Israeli, I, no, if you're an Israeli I, citizen, you're yeah, I said that, but that's not. To, mm. I mean, do you? I mean, there are Sharia courts in Israel. I don't think you have that in Europe. Can we compare it to Europe? Can, you know, can you wear outward uh, religious symbols in Israel? Yeah. Can you, ha- pr- you know, do halal rules uh, in Israel? Yeah. Can you get, you know, do adoptions and family stuff and all kinds of other matters of personal status adjudicated by a uh, a Muslim judge who's trained in Sharia? Yeah. I mean, I, you got, an, you know, you got an Islamist sitting in parliament, you know, talking about very Islamist things. And there's not a lot of places anywhere in the world where you see such a person allowed right. to participate in the political process. So I'm just saying on right, but it's a low bar. Assessment, I just want to be careful about because it sounds like it's but it sounds like like the way you're talking like tomorrow they might you know the Israeli Arabs are going to be thrown into this like it's not at that's all right. Like and I, that. I just I want to where, I do want to jump in, Robert. That yeah. like I'm just I was just pushing that line for for intellectual stuff. I you know I, I, I listeners should I think be aware if they're not following it that that's you know well I mean we can debate that whether maybe this is a good pivot to start talking about the. Uh, uh, the new Israeli government and the sort of the reality and like what what it may portend mm. uh, on all of this. But, you know, I, you know, just as for for listeners. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's uh, what I was getting at was was just basically pushing some weird thought experiments, taking shoddy sort of conception. I want to be clear. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I was responding mostly to Demir. I've never suggested that ethnic cleansing or population transfer is likely to happen to Arab citizens of Israel. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting that i mean it is an interesting thought experiment because obviously there are fears of you know what might happen at some unspecified point in the future but yes it's not it's not a live concern right now 
Um, I think, <laughs> but stick around for a lot more of where this came from. Become a paying subscriber at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us for the second half. See you there.